Well, Jesus tells us to be persistent in our prayers because unlike the unjust judge who rolls his eyes in weariness with that widow and her petitions for justice, because unlike him, our Heavenly Father listens to our prayers, and he is just. Actually, he's more than just. He's interested, but we'll get to that later. You know, one of the great things about being Episcopalian, being an Episcopal priest, quite frankly, is that when we want to pray, we have these great prayers already written for us. They say everything so eloquently and fully, and they are nuanced and ever so morally and doctrinally correct. Take the collect for last Sunday, which is one of my favorites. Lord, we pray that your grace may always precede and follow us, that we may continually be given to good works through Jesus Christ our Lord. How masterful. All in one breath, we affirm the doctrine of grace while being asked to be given over to good works. An entire treatise by Calvin, distilled in a sentence. But the thing is, a prayer doesn't have to be perfect to be effective. No, in fact, a prayer muttered with all our fears and short-sighted demands and even selfish requests affects the world powerfully. God works with those prayers to do wondrous things because God works with what he has got, which is our will. And when we speak to God, we are in effect opening our conscious will to him for him to shape, for him to be in conversation with us. And he's listening, and that is powerful. Today, I want to reflect on the power of mediocre, even perhaps downright bad prayers. And we have an excellent example of the results of one such fearful, self-interested, short-sighted prayer in the amazing passage we read from Genesis today. The passage was about Jacob, who finds himself wrestling all night long with a stranger who we find out turns out to be God in human form. And then, most surprisingly, the mysterious man, who was God, blesses Jacob and gives him a new name and a future, actually. From being called Jacob, which means he grabs, because in the womb, Jacob had grasped his brother Esau's ankle so that Jacob might be the first one into the world with all the privileges of the firstborn. He's changed from that to Israel, which means, or one of the meanings, is to contend with God. This story is mysterious for sure, and I want to highlight some details of the text in a moment. But what is interesting in the context of this persistence in prayer is that this wrestling match is presented as an answer to Jacob's earlier prayer. We haven't read it, but I'll let you know what it's about. 
And it was a kind of self-interested, unimpressive prayer, really. Jacob had been praying to God, and then this wrestling match and blessing is what follows. So what was the prayer about? What did it consist of? Well, here's the context. As we recall, Jacob was a schemer from birth who had tricked his older brother, Esau, out of his inheritance as the firstborn, and later out of his special blessing from his father. You may remember that Jacob, with his mother's encouragement, waited until Esau was out hunting. Then Jacob dressed in skins to approximate Esau's hairy arms and went to his father Isaac to request the blessing of the firstborn. Isaac couldn't really see very well, and uh, he's persuaded, despite some initial hesitation, he's persuaded by Jacob's outright lies. He gives the precious one-of-a-kind blessing. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Be Lord over your brothers. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Well, Jacob got what he wanted. God was actually faithful to that blessing that, Esau, that Isaac gave to Jacob. Jacob got what he wanted, but it was a mean trick. Well, when Esau returned home later, he cried out bitterly that his special blessing had been taken, but also, no doubt, there must have been such pain when he realized the betrayal of his own mother and brother, who'd not only taken what was rightfully his, but they had treated him as expendable, as someone who really didn't count in their eyes or the eyes of God. Well, Jacob prudently, stealthily escapes and goes to Badam Aran. And there he marries and ironically has to contend with a father-in-law who is even more grasping and dishonest than Jacob. Jacob continues to strive for what he wants, and over time he accumulates great wealth and several wives, at least one of whom he loves. Eventually, God tells him it is time to return home. In fact, Jacob had gotten into another scrape with Laban, and it was time to skedaddle. That was sort of a pattern in Jacob's life, you know, get into conflict and run away. So off he goes with all the wives and children and sheep and goats and servants, and it was all well and good, except for the looming reality of an encounter with Esau. It is on this journey home that Jacob starts sweating bullets. He hears that Esau is on his way with 400 men. Jacob prudently sends out a party ahead with a gift of she-goats and he-goats and rams and ewes as a way to really buy off Esau's anger and vengeance. But Jacob is still terrified. So he prays. He prays for safety for himself and his wives and his children. He admits he's afraid, 
He reminds God of the promises that he has made to bless him. But for the alert reader, trained by the moral compass of the Book of Common Prayer and all its doctrinal robustness, well, this prayer is really lacking something. It's a very self-serving prayer. And while there's a bit of I am not worthy language, it, it seems a bit obligatory. And it doesn't really name what Jacob had done to Esau and concern, legitimate concern for Esau and a desire for justice for Esau. None of that is in this prayer. It is, I would say, a mediocre prayer, a C-plus at best, limited in scope to his own immediate needs, fearful, but nevertheless, an earnest prayer to Almighty God. So what is God's response? And here we ought to be encouraged. The scripture tells us that in the dark, a man appears with no introduction and wrestles with Jacob. They wrestle all night until morning, and when the man saw that he did not prevail over Jacob, he touched his hip and put it out of joint. Some will say this is because the man turned out to be God, and if Jacob were to see God face to face in the daylight, it would be the end of Jacob. Still, Jacob hangs on to him and demands a blessing. Jacob says later that he had seen God face to face, and so the reader understands that this man was an appearance of God. And of course, God could have overpowered Jacob in a nanosecond, but he didn't. Instead, he relinquished his divine power and glory in order to condescend, to wrestle with Jacob on somewhat equal footing. Why, we wonder, would God have gone to such lengths? I'm actually interested to hear what you think about that. Ultimately, you know, it was to give Jacob a blessing, a new name, a future. Israel means two things. It means either God struggles, strives, persists, which of course God did all night long with Jacob and quite frankly, all of Jacob's life and in fact with the nation which bore the name Israel. God struggled, strived, and persisted. He did it to contend with this rascal whom he had decided to bless to bless not just with lots of goats and sheep and land and children, all the things that Jacob wanted, but with harmonious relationships, with forgiveness, with peace, the things God wanted for Jacob. The other meaning of Israel is one who struggles with God, which of course is also true. And a little bit more about the hip, scholars think that not only was it to protect Jacob from seeing God face to face in the light, it was also a reminder for the rest of his life that yes, he had struggled with God and lived. Following the wrestling match, Jacob meets Esau, who runs toward him, throws his arms around him, 
and weeps. And by the way, says, yeah, you can keep the sheep and the goats and stuff. I'm really just happy to have a relationship with you, not in so many words. And when Jacob realizes that he has been forgiven, he says that looking at his brother is like seeing the face of God, which is fresh in his mind from the night before. I said in the beginning that even mediocre prayers, self-interested, short-sighted prayers, save me, God, are worth praying. Because God is real, he listens. And in that intimate place of our honest expression of our will, God is most interested in responding to us ultimately desiring to bless us. God's appearance to Jacob was, of course, a prefigurement of what God would truly become human, would enter into human flesh, and would live and die alongside humans on even footing. As Philippians puts it, by taking the form of a servant, being born as a man, and humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. God's desire is to bless us, not just with good grades or a new car or a bunch of she-goats and he-goats and ewes and lambs. God's deep desire is to bring us into right relationship with himself and with each other so that we won't have to keep running away like Jacob. So we escape a relentless circle of fear and shame and vengeance so that we can see one another face to face and see God there and know peace. And yes, that kind of peace, the peace which passes all understanding, is a divine gift. And it rests on Jesus once for all dying on a cross Content to contend and triumph over sin, over the nasty, grasping motives of Jacob and his mother, over the less than commendable motives of our own lives and their consequences. Jesus came to set us free through forgiveness earned on our behalf, freedom to lead new lives. Persist in praying, says Jesus, because God is just, and more than that, God is good, and it desires to fully restore you. His plan includes the whole world, which is why it quickly seems to take a long time. But your prayer, it doesn't have to be perfect. No, it can actually be a C-plus prayer. God will work with that. <laughs> 